0: It was a Darwinian struggle across the open range, as it often is in a capitalist society, a struggle to survive, to outcompete, to adapt on the fly to changing circumstances brought on by new technology, emerging monopolies, changing regulations, fluctuating markets, and fickle weather. From one angle, the story of the great beef bonanza is a record of remarkable human ingenuity and technological advancement. From another, it's a case history of the calamities that befall those who ignore economic or ecological realities in a single-minded pursuit of the American dream. The open-range cattle era and its role in shaping America deserve to be more broadly known, if only as an instructive, cautionary tale. That is a passage from Cattle Kingdom, The Hidden History of the Cowboy West by Christopher Knowlton. That is going to be the basis for today's very special history episode about an interesting and pivotal time in American history, but also in the history of industrialized agriculture. So I'm really excited to dive in. Uh, joining me for this is the person who recommended Cattle Kingdom to me, someone who has been a regular on the show, Jeanette Barnard. Jeanette, thanks so much for tackling this, uh, this story. I'm excited to dive in.
1: Tim, I think this is your Christmas present to me, is letting me talk about this book, which is one of my favorite things in the whole world.
0: It definitely lived up to the hype. Uh, this book is both instructive about how bubbles form, uh, but also some really pivotal beginnings, as I said, to to what we know today as agriculture, especially uh, on the meat side of the business, which is what you cover in your wonderful weekly newsletter called Prime Future, of which I'm a very happy paid subscriber and encourage everyone to check that out. We'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, one more bit of housekeeping, though, before we dive into this story of this era of open range cattle in the West. I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is FarmWave. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer.
1: I had firsthand experience with it. It proved itself right out the gate the first minute we started running it. That is hard to argue with. You know, I mean, when you see something instantly showing you a return, there's something to it. And then it's done it over the you know we've done it multiple times would i like to get through a season without it showing me anything yeah that'd be great it means i'm doing it right but it's also nice having that safety net that if something when you get to the end of the season you're maybe not checking everything you really should or you just assume everything's adjusted correctly or it's running right well this is going to tell you otherwise if you do have something that's not right
0: Join the ranks of farmers deploying harvest vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind. Put AI to work on your farm. Just visit FarmWave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you. Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right. Well, let me let's uh, just start Jeanette by setting the scene here a little bit. So we're talking 1800s, mid to late 1800s, and uh, a lot of things are happening in the young United States of America, less than a hundred years old at this point. Um, the westward expansion is in full effect. We've already kind of had uh, the gold rush uh, happen out in California. The railroad is expanding west, and it's opening up new opportunities for uh, accessing eastern markets, you know, in the east coast which are hungry for things like beef, which is going to be the focus for today's episode. So during this time, you know, you've got the transcontinental railroad being built. Interestingly enough, uh, I believe the book talked about how the Suez Canal was also finished like either the same day or like right around when the transcontinental was finished, so like globalization is is like coming, right? We we have the infrastructure being put in place. And to me, all of this demand for beef there's all these cattle down in Texas, and um, they can start to meet that demand. But, but even before that, we should talk about the buffalo, right? Um, the bison or the American buffalo, uh, which was, as everybody knows, in just vast – populations throughout the Great Plains of the United States where they lived. Thousands and thousands and thousands of these animals became a sport for people from all over the world to come visit and hunt and uh, kill, and and kill they did. Uh, Just this mass extinction of the buffalo, not only for sport, but also To uh, enable westward expansion. From what I read, they would get in the way of railroad construction often. Uh, But also, you know, very real reality was displacing uh, the Native Americans who lived here and and relied on the buffalo herds for their survival. So, um, yeah, that kind of started to lay the groundwork for this great expanse of the American West, which was used to grazing animals by the hundreds and thousands, to be a, a prime location for for the American cattle industry to, to take root.
1: Yeah. One thing I would add here, Tim, is that I find it so fascinating in the book. It talks about how, like, let's call it pre 1850. So pre civil war that kind of West of Ohio was really viewed as just a vast expanse of land that was basically worthless. There was no value to it. There was no value ascribed to it. Um, And so there's a lot of, Changing views, let's call it between the 1850s and 1890s, about the value of the region and what we can do with that land. Um, As you say, I mean, I think one dynamic that you just can't overlook and that you can go down a whole entire rabbit hole here is around the topic of what was happening with Native American tribes during that time and how the US government was treating them, and it was not good. And one thing that I had never appreciated until I read this book was how, you know, doing away with the bison was really a final just nail in the coffin of doing away with the way of life of the Plains Indians. You know, that was the final tool of convincing, quote unquote, convincing these Native American tribes to um, surrender to the reservations because their way of life was, it, it no longer existed in a world without millions of bison, you know, I think it was estimates of like 60 to 90 million bison that roamed the plains. And when those were gone, (laughs) like the way of life of those plains Indians was never coming back. And so that forced the surrender of the Native American tribes to the reservations, just such a dark, gross chapter in American history. Um, As a side note, if there's any history buffs out there, I totally recommend the book Empire of the Summer Moon if you want to read more about that specific dynamic around the Apaches, the Comanches, all of that was happening um, kind of in the, let's call it the 1830s, 1840s, kind of fits in there as well.
0: Interesting. We'll I'll have to check that book out. But yeah, definitely, you know, created this forced dependency um, that, that played into the interests of, of kind of the American colonial settlers at the time, whether or not they blatantly said, we're doing this because we want to, you know, create the dependency or not, they, they clearly were, right? And that's one thing I've realized from doing these history episodes is just there's a lot of dark stuff where it's like, do I really want to talk about this on the episode? But you, I mean, you, you have to, right? Like that, it's real. It's real. It is the history. Yeah. I'm not glorifying it, but it, it is an important component to, to where we come from. And, and, you know, war has has had a role in every history episode of agriculture I've done so far, including this one, which You know, the Civil War uh, happened right before this. In fact, uh, in the book, it talks about how cattle started to move north from Texas to these kind of rail depots uh, in the north. And it, it, this commerce that was created is a little bit of what helped some of the healing from the civil war. And when North and South could sort of engage in commerce together. Um, and by the numbers, you know, the Texas cattle moving North at 35,000 head estimated 1867, 75,000 the very next year. So double more than doubled next year. And then 350,000 the year after that. So 10 X in two years uh, of all these cattle moving Northward on these cattle trails and these cattle drives from Texas to these, um uh, to these rail depots, which created these these cattle towns, which are the kind of the Old West style towns that uh, we always see depicted in, in Westerns and, and kind of all the media from, from the time, right?
1: And you can kind of just map it of it was directly inverse of how quickly the cattle population took off, especially across those trails, and how quickly the bison population dropped, right? Because those two things were happening at let's call them at parallel um, orders of magnitude, uh, just inverted, right? But it's also interesting, going back to your point about there's just these realities of what happens uh, or the realities of what has happened in our history. I think that that's one of my favorite things about reading history is you realize nothing happens in a vacuum, right? There was a context and there was technology innovation and there was political Strife, And as you said, we're coming out of the Civil War. And all of these things are happening in, in a way that creates a specific circumstance during which, you know, something economically happens. And, and understanding it in its circumstance, I think, is really helpful, the specific context of it.
0: Yeah absolutely one thing that is after i read it it was kind of intuitive but it makes so much sense is like these cattle towns that developed sort of became these lightning rods for the market right the reason why we could go from you know uh, 35,000 in 1867 to 350,000 a couple of years later is because we had these these marketplaces that were developed and the distribution to get it to chicago and beyond out east uh, but it also created like An interesting arbitrage opportunity that astute people saw, which is like, okay, all these people are making all this money moving cattle from Texas up to these cattle towns in Kansas and elsewhere. But like a lot of that money goes for the drive themselves and they lose a lot of cattle. So why can't we just raise the cattle further north, close to these rail depots and not have to drive them so far, Uh, which really kind of sets the scene for This big boom, this big bubble that we're talking about in today's episode, uh, which happened uh, shortly after that. So they started kind of settling these more northern areas in Wyoming and Montana and the Dakotas, Wyoming and the Dakotas. I I think those were all territories at this point. You know more about history than I I might be wrong, but um, sort of like settling these areas. And um, obviously, words getting out now that there's a lot of money to be made in this cattle industry because it was open range. So go out there it's kind of say I here I'm grazing this area and this is my this is my cattle ranch so without paying for the land you kind of had the rights to graze it
1: so one thing that I want to call out here Tim going back to your point about arbitrage is that a steer in Texas well, let's call it the 1860s right we're, we're fresh out of the civil war a steer in Texas was worth 4 dollars do you know how much it was worth in New York no 40 to 50 dollars so, so you talk about arbitrage, like that, that right there represents the opportunity, you know, $4 a head. They, these were not high value animals. Suddenly now post Civil War, you have the northern um, part of the United States where the economy is doing well and they are craving high quality meat. And so that, that's what creates this opportunity of, all right, how do we get these animals to the Northeast where there's high value because they're consumers with spending dollars ready to eat beef?
0: Yeah. And it, it seems like there was very real questions, though, like, could these cattle survive in this northern climate? And they, and to your point earlier, as the bi- the bison population started to dwindle to almost zero, they started to realize, wow, this, this can work. I, uh, one quote from the book here is it says, uh, the drought resistant blue gamma grass, the buffalo grass and the tussock and bunch grasses that once fed the buffalo herds could now sustain the Texas cattle. And the concept opened up new economic possibilities for people to kind of move northward and serve this huge demand. Uh, but, but word started kind of getting out, not just to uh, people in the United States, but outside of the United States as well. And this is one of the more interesting aspects of the story to me, Jeanette, which is like all of the foreign interests, mostly from, uh, you know, from uh, Great Britain, Irish, Scottish uh, people who kind of catch on to this, this big, quote unquote, gold rush that was happening now in, in cattle.
1: Yeah. So it's really interesting because you, you have two dynamics that I think if either of these dynamics had not been true at the same time, we wouldn't have had the cattle boom in the same way that we did, right? So the first the first dynamic that was happening is that there are all these reports being written about how much money is being made in the U.S. cattle business, okay? So you've got reports of 25% annual returns, reports of 33 to 66% returns. It's, it's all over the place. People are saying, you know, there's this one section of the book. Um, it was described as the best, most infallible investment proposition of the day, Okay, now this is a direct quote. It says, I do not hesitate to say that this is the grandest opportunity for investment that can be offered. There are no uncertain risks attached to the business to eat up profits as the losses are almost nothing and the profits many times those afforded by other investments.
0: All right, that should be a little bit of a red flag to you if you're listening, right? A little bit of red flag about the, the perception of risk, but we will get there for sure.
1: <laughs> yep, yep. Um, one follow-up comment on that is that there was another quote uh, from another report that said, there is not the slightest element of uncertainty in cattle raising. So obviously anybody that's ever uh, interacted with cattle or the business of cattle or cattle markets is laughing right now at the absurdity of that. Um, but I, I think that level of confidence around the returns that were being generated in the U.S. cattle business, it really set the foundation for the second dynamic I'm about to call out. And that was that in Europe, specifically in England, you had this situation where the value of their commodities uh, was really dropping. So they had some policy changes that were decreasing the value of the different grains that they produced, they were starting to see imports in England from other countries that was um, you know, creating increased competition. And so you know, the book talked about how one of the challenges was you had all of these landed gentry. So these large families that own tons of land, most of them did not farm it themselves. They had you know, tenant farmers. And as the value of commodities dropped, those tenant farmers, they couldn't pay the rent. So the value of their rent coming in was about halved. Um, actually, this was really exciting for me because one of my favorite shows on the face of the planet is Downton Abbey. And so the book actually references like, you know, the Crawley family in Downton Abbey. This is exactly the situation they faced where it's like, all right, are you going to have, just have some offspring to marry a wealthy American family so that you can shore up the estate? Or are you going to actually change your business model and look at what you're doing? But um, one of the fallouts from that is that you had people who are needing higher returns than what they could get um, in their home country that combined with the fact that they were reading all of these reports about the certain returns coming out of the U.S. beef industry just created a perfect storm to attract all of this international investment, specifically from England, Ireland, Scotland.
0: Yeah, and I mean, as as anyone who's studied any history or geopolitics knows, like this was the empire of its time, right? And so uh, the this money that existed in in Britain uh, and with this aristocracy. Uh, that lived over there, I mean that 's what they did professionally is like had money, right? So they bought land, they had tenants, they collected rent, and all of it fell apart i was I was just blown away, in fact, I tweeted about it as soon as I saw it because I had to about this part of the book where they start realizing like, well, hold on we've got all this wealth, but now we have no money. And uh, you know, it says that the British uh, tenant farmers are unable to pay the rent to their landlords, resulting in enormous financial strains on England's great landed estates, many of which were leveraged. And so not only did they buy land, but they also borrow money to buy even more land than they could afford, despite their enormous wealth. Anyway, it says rental incomes at many estates dropped by half to two thirds between 1872 and 1890. The value of the land was halved. And as a, we're going to talk a lot about bubbles throughout today's episode, right? That's what this was. is a huge bubble in the cattle industry in the West and, I think in order for a bubble to exist, it has to be very much a faux pas to call it a bubble at the t- at the time. And I, I kind of feel that way about farmland today. I, and I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but like it feels like it's so counterintuitive to say like, oh, I think I think this grounds overpriced. Maybe you don't want to buy land at this at this price because everyone's like, if I had money, that's where I'd buy. Just more land, more land, more land. I don't know. I feel that way right now. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I, I think that's an interesting driver of like. Them looking for that return you said. So when they hear twenty five percent return in cattle, how do I how do I get there?
1: Yeah, to me the biggest indicator of some bubblishness is when people start saying prices can't go down, right? When there is an assumption that it is up and up, up and to the right forever and ever. Number one, like the history of markets just proves that's never true. You know, and so whether it's farmland or anything else, like if your core assumption in order to make this investment work is that prices have to increase forever and ever, um, I think that becomes a little bit tenuous. And that certainly, you know, throughout the book, throughout the different reports that were floating back from individuals, from publications that were floating back to Europe at that time, all of the reports were prices cannot go down. There is insatiable demand. There's no way to satisfy the demand that exists. Prices of beef cannot go down. And again, anybody who's ever been in this market knows that's fundamentally untrue. I mean, I don't want to dwell on this by any means, and I don't want to name names, but there is a, a $191 million situation that has recently you know, been stopped. The SEC has put a stop to it in the US cattle industry. One of the red flags to a lot of industry folks when they saw that this business was you know, popping up a few years ago was that on their website, they were promising guaranteed returns. And there's just no such thing as guaranteed returns in a commodity market. I don't care who you are or what your fancy financial instrument is. There's no such thing as guaranteed returns.
0: No, absolutely not. And, and we'll see just some outlandish perception of risk in this story. And I'd like to think like, oh, wow, I could, it's easy for me to look back now and be like, how idiotic, right? But I think it must be human nature to get swept up in these things because it's this is not the only story of boom and bust cycles. It happens all the time in agriculture, especially. It, it is human nature to get swept up. And when you see everyone else making money, and you feel like, oh, I'm playing it too safe because everyone's leaving me in the dust, you get swept up in it. I felt it myself and I, I see it all the time. Uh, but yeah, so clearly people got swept up in it in this story, right? The British sank something like $45 million at the time, which is now like over a billion dollars into uh, cattle, into, into these cattle ranches, cattle operations uh, in the US, which is just an astronomical amount of money.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, one thing I would call out here is that I don't think it's just in ag markets. We see it in ag markets because that's what we're closest to, but we also see it. I mean, crypto, venture capital, you know, the broader tech market. Like, it's it's just such a fundamental human. I, I I think you're exactly right on the human nature of it. But two other things that stood out to me of part of what facilitated the massive amount of investment, as you just called out from Europe into the US cattle industry at that time was one, the development of a limited liability corporation so that individuals weren't going to be held liable. The most they could lose was what they had put into it. So they could they could take out debt to finance the business and yet they wouldn't personally be held accountable for that debt if the business went under. So obviously that enabled a lot of additional private investment and a lot of those limited liability corporations were established. But then also there was more and more joint stock Uh, corporations that were established. So publicly listed companies, um, particularly on the London Stock Exchange. And so that to me is something else that signals, when I think of the early cattle industry, I think that my default is to assume that these were small producers. No, no, no. (laughs) These were gigantic producers that were raising tons of capital. They were buying 70,000, 80,000 head. I mean, these were, when you talk about cattle barons, like these were gigantic operations, by any standard today or or back then.
0: Absolutely, yeah. They swung very, very big uh, for the fences, right? Uh, and, and in fact, when times were good, you could say cattle barons and cowboys were... All getting along, having a great time, but then when times went bad, as we see later in this story, uh, they really become at odds. In fact, you start to see cowboy strikes, which are very rare things before that time because all the power uh, went to the cattle barons. And when they started to feel threatened, they started um, you know, mistreating people. And boy, did they mistreat people. It is wild. Well, one of those aristocrats uh, that uh, came over from uh, Scotland, I believe, actually had the first publicly traded cattle company on the London Stock Exchange. So he created a public corporation. This guy, his name was Morton Fruin. He, um, like many people who flocked to the Great Plains uh, during that time, was in his 20s, ambitious, felt like he needed to make a name for himself. And um I just want to read this this passage about him. In fact, I think the book says he he bet big on on some sort of gambling before he came to the U.S. And like I said, if I lose this, I'm going to go to America and start a cattle business. I don't know if that's true. I think I remember that from the book. But uh, anyway, that's the type of guy he was. And it, you'll see it comes back to bite him again and again and again. But let me just read this passage about Morton Fruin because it blew my mind. Uh, it says – And yet his career would put him in charge of one of the West's largest cattle ranches. In fact, the first such cattle company to register on the London Stock Exchange through his career, Fruin would discover while traveling in India, an unknown 22 year old writer named Rudyard Kipling. He would also come to be on a first name basis with nine successive U.S. presidents, Hayes through Wilson and numerous heads of state around the world. To befriend famous writers, including Oscar Wilde, Stephen Crane, Henry James, and Joseph Conrad, and to know personally virtually every single peer of the realm in Britain. Uh, His final claim to fame was offering counsel to a nephew, someone named Winston Churchill, you may recognize, uh, on how to develop a sonorous prose style. But all that lay ahead of Morton Fruin. So this is back when he left to uh, the U.S. All he knew for certain in the fall of 1878 was that at 25 years of age, he was about to become. A cattle rancher. Uh, so, to make a long story short about Fruin, because like I said, we could easily do a full episode on him, uh, he settled in what's known as a Powder River Basin, which is in Wyoming, um, kind of close to the Bighorn Mountains. He uh, noticed that it didn't get as much snow there as the rest of the area uh, received. And so he kind of built his, his empire there. In fact, one of the chapters of the book is called Fruin's Castle because he built this massive castle to accompany his massive uh, cattle operation. In the area. But I, I want to kind of key in on Fruin because I think he represented the boom and bust of the time. He had high highs, like I said, one of the biggest cattle operations at the time, and low lows. I mean, he ended up losing it all. And you, you can tell that the fall is coming because you can see that he sort of epitomizes this failure to understand risks. In the book, it outlines the fact that he dismissed outright as virtually impossible. The threat of overgrazing in the area, he brushed aside any risk of collapsing beef prices, remarking, and this is a quote, nor is it reasonable to anticipate any fall in the price of beef. On the contrary, it is a problem of great perplexity how at any price the population of the United States will be supplied. Uh, He argued that beef production would need to grow at at least 25 percent each year just to meet the growing demand. He also dismissed the dangers uh, posed by weather in his operation. Uh, He had another quote that said, I may also fairly claim for Powder River a local exemption from snowfalls, which is well known throughout the territories and uh, it was this tradition during the winter of 1878 that uh, first directed my attention to that range. So he, he noticed one bad winter that they didn't get snowfall there. So he decided that they were uh, exempt from snowfalls in the area. So you can see the disregard for risk as he's writing to his investors overseas to get more money to grow a bigger and bigger operation as this bubble is growing larger and larger.
1: I think that section where the author is describing all of Fruin's comments to his investors about this business and how great and predictable the returns were, I think that the author said that Fruin would be proved wrong on every single one of those points.
0: Yeah, in fact, in the book, he talks about his last trip to Wyoming, which is later in 1886, his final trip to Wyoming. By then, his investors had kicked him out, put someone else in charge, and everything was was collapsing. We'll talk about what burst this bubble here in a little bit. But he wrote to his wife this. He says, well, whatever happens, if we do pull our company out of its troubles, the rest are all broke, the gang of them. No one in Cheyenne has got a bob left. I never saw such a depressed place. And then he added a, a postscript to it. He says, I dread the coming winter. If it is a severe one, half the cattle in Wyoming will die for sure. And the author says that's the one thing he was right about is something called the big die up that we'll talk about when we talk about what bursted the bubble, that that winter did come and that exact thing did happen. But pretty much on every other account, the guy was wrong and uh, he paid for it. Uh, he, He went from flying high you know born into wealth having this big cattle operation losing it in the bubble trying to regain himself in various ways and ultimately uh you read in the book that he starts to rob his children's trust just to maintain his lifestyle until he he finally passes away so it is a sad story but this whole thing is in some ways the human element of it is is extremely sad as well but i think i think we should mention here that you know at the hype of this bubble, it wasn't just Fruin who was kind of ignoring these risks. In fact, I thought this was interesting. If you've ever been to Cheyenne, Wyoming, you'll find this surprising, I would bet. But Cheyenne became the hub of this Western cattle industry, uh, mostly due to its geography and access to the rail, which could go you know straight shot to Chicago. Uh, but by 1880, it would claim 3000 residents. So it was already, it had already gone from like a cattle depot to a city of, of good size by now. And of those 3000 residents, eight millionaires in 1880. I mean, I don't know what a million dollars is today in 1880 terms, but like eight millionaires of 3000 people. So uh, by some estimates, it was considered like the highest per capita income of any city in the world. Cheyenne, Wyoming, at the height of this uh, height of this bubble, just just mind boggling to me. So now we're reaching the height of this bubble, right? So you've got Morton Fruin in the Powder River Basin writing his investors saying, Everything 's great we can 't possibly lose you 've got uh, people like the Colorado Livestock Record, which summarized the growing fever of this optimism by saying cattle is one of those investments men cannot pay too much for since if left alone, they will multiply, replenish, and grow out of a bad bargain. You mentioned earlier kind of some of the other just like hype that people were putting on this now that we can look back, we could say all right well this is this is certainly headed for a fall, but before we get to The bubble bursting and it all falling apart. I think it's important to acknowledge that there are some really, really positive and long lasting implications of these events. You know, the hype brought money, it also brought opportunity, it brought innovation, Uh, it brought new infrastructure. And really, we still rely on some of the infrastructure that was put in place as a result uh, of this boom. So uh, maybe, Jeanette, you want to talk about kind of some of that stuff that came from this time?
1: Okay, so the interesting thing is that to me, this book um, not only reads like a how to think about markets book and about bubbles, um, but it also reads as a how to think about innovation because to me, there's really two layers of innovation that are happening here. You have all of the macro innovation that's happening that is setting up the context, such as the railroad, the telegraph lines, um, the Suez Canal, all, all of those macro things that are going to create unlocked value for a lot of different industries And then you have the industry-specific innovations that happen. So one of them that I think is really interesting is actually the concept of the railroad depots themselves. Because when the open range uh, era kind of starts originally, they were actually trailing cattle all the way from Texas up to Kansas City, St. Louis, or Chicago, where then they were putting live cattle on rail. Uh, to be shipped back East where it was slaughtered and then obviously sold to consumers right there in those Northeastern uh, population centers. The railroad depots, that was really an idea that um, one cattle industry participant had where he said, okay, time out. What if we could get the railroads to extend these lines down to these cow towns that we're gonna create? And we can if we just get the cattle there, then they can be railed to Chicago or St. Louis or Kansas City and then be railed on from there. So that in and of itself was an innovation to unlock um, you know, basically trying to limit the risk because the longer you have to trail cattle, just the more risk there is in the system. So that was one kind of minor innovation that obviously didn't end up lasting. That certainly wasn't a long lasting innovation. But along those same lines of just transportation innovation was a huge one that you could, I, I, I think you could make an argument that it was one of the biggest impacts, highest impacting innovations on American agriculture and that's refrigerated rail cars. So one of those uh, huge innovations was by Gustavus Swift, who uh, meat industry listeners would recognize the name Swift, and um, it is the packing plant Swift. That's the guy. He came up with the idea of refrigerated rail cars, and he said, "Time out. Why are we shipping live cattle who have to be fed and watered? They shrink, and we want to be you know we want to be paid on um, on total pounds." And you're shipping a lot of uh, pieces of the animal that are not going to end up on the consumer's plate. And so isn't the more efficient way to do this to slaughter the animals closer to the point of origin? And then if we can ship carcasses, right, that's going to be the best way to do this. So Swift comes up with this concept of a refrigerated rail car and, you know, he's all excited about it. This is going to change the industry. He starts shopping it to all of the large railroad companies. And this is my favorite the railroad companies basically say, take a hike. The reason for that is because they already were shipping live cattle and it was one of their most profitable business lines. So they didn't want to cannibalize their own live cattle business by shipping meat instead with these refrigerated rail cars. So Swift goes and he finds a small railroad company that doesn't ship live cattle and convinces them to start using these refrigerated rail cars. To me, this is such a great example of the innovator's dilemma, right? Because the big established companies... They couldn't jeopardize the majority of their business um, with this upstart thing that, that, that might be something that becomes a thing or it might just you know, be a nuisance on their bigger business. Whereas the smaller railroad company that didn't have an existing live cattle shipping business, um, they were more than willing to jump in. And obviously, they proved to the world that this was a great way to do it. And eventually, that put pressure on the large railroad companies and eventually everyone adopted the railcars. The reason this is such a big deal is because when you think about transportation technologies and transportation innovations as unlocking resources and changing, you know, if you think about live cattle, we have feed, we have meat, all of these things can be shipped and that can shift where the production takes place, right? So instead of trailing cattle to a railroad, then put live cattle on the rail, sent to the processing plant that's near the consumers, Well, now we can kind of back that chain up and we can put processing plants closer to the cattle. So that's why we start to see processing plants more in the Midwest. All we have to do then is get the animals to the processing plant. Then we can slaughter the animals, start disassembling carcasses. And at that point, you're know, you really just splitting the carcass into two and shipping it back East to where it's going to be sent to wholesale distributors who are going to further cut the carcass and, and get it in front of consumers, but play that out. And obviously the book doesn't cover the innovation of boxed beef, but ultimately that then led to the innovation of boxed beef, which said, hey, it's pretty inefficient to ship sides of a beef carcass. Let's go ahead and further disassemble the carcass at the point of slaughter. And then we can be even more efficient in our transportation. And so to me, it's really interesting as you think about all of those um, transportation unlocks and, and how that changed the geography of the, of the agriculture economy. One other huge innovation that ultimately led to, started to lead to the downfall of the industry was the innovation of barbed wire. So uh, regular wire didn't do that good of a job of keeping animals in pretty predictably. And so actually a few people kind of filed a patent on barbed wire at about the same time. But once it came to market, the rate of adoption on barbed wire, it's fascinating how quickly it just skyrocketed because That was what helped people to keep track of their animals, to keep them in one place. The book talks about how the use of barbed wire lowered cost of production because now the animals are all in one place. So we don't need to do a roundup twice a year because we know where the animals are. So we can have fewer cowboys on staff, for one thing. We're going to have less predation. So that's another piece. Um, And there were just all of these different layers to it. And obviously barbed wire has been used for a very long time, but... Again, kind of linking that to current day, then think about the evolution from barbed wire to then we got, you know, electric fencing. And now we have producers using virtual fencing. Can you imagine, you know, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, thinking about putting a device on animals to determine uh, where they're going to graze for the day or the week or the month. It's just fascinating to see those, the outlines of later innovation and some of those early innovations.
0: It's mind blowing. And actually what you just said right there, I mean, all that stuff on innovation, but especially the innovators dilemma, like that was worth the price of a mission right there. That is like such a crucial part of this episode. I, I, you laid it out perfectly, but I do want to get back to meat packing because, you know, that is certainly one of the legacies from this whole time is like what happened in industrialized meat. And you mentioned uh, Gustavus Swift. And then there's also uh, George Hammond, I think was another kind of innovator. And these guys would create you know Chicago as this like meat packing hub, and bring in innovations that that not only would allow for this boom to take place, but also would lead to people like Henry Ford like copying them in his own designs for mass uh, manufacturing. Right? Um, I don't know. I think that is really really interesting. The power that was developed during that time by the meat packers and that power, I think you would know better than I would, kind of still exists today.
1: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that if you think about what they did. Um- if a business is just an organization of the organizing of resources, of capital, of human capital, of you know natural resources, they organized them in a way that was more efficient than anything that had been seen before at a scale that was different than anything that had been seen before. And so these businesses just grew so quickly. I think the book says that in the, by the late 1880s, meat packing represented like 20 percent of GDP in the United States, which is mind-boggling and that really what the meatpackers were the early iterations of large-scale industrialized corporations. And again, like a lot of the what we think of as how corporations operate and the structure and the hierarchy associated with those corporations and how humans are organized traces its roots back to the meatpackers and it's really interesting there's a um there's a book called Humanocracy that the current CEO of Bayer is all about. And the basic premise of that book is that you don't need layers of bureaucracy. You can let humans have decision making autonomy. And it's the direct opposite of this. But it's it's going to be funny if, if humanocracy takes off as a concept, it would be kind of the first time that you would be replacing some of these ideas from Gustavus Swift and other meatpackers around how they organize their early meatpacking corporations. So- fascinating to see the ripple implications and legacy of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it opened up new markets as well. The book talks about how they used all the byproducts, right? You know, the leather, the trimmings, the offal, you know, all of these different parts. And they created a moat for themselves because they were the only one with the size and scale enough to actually like create these types of markets. But it also created this huge power dynamic that we're going to see. All of this has sort of been fueling the boom and is exactly the things that are going to lead to the bust, right?
1: And to be fair, the interesting point about what you just said around the scale that the Packers have that gives them access to those, let's call them secondary markets that are not, you know, the primary value of the carcass of the the high value meats, especially what they call the middle meats, right? The highest value cuts. That's still the advantage that large packers have over small packers. That's still the reason that, you know, it's really hard for small packers to compete in the industry today is because they just don't have the scale. And the implications, the so what of that is they don't have the scale. So they can't access those secondary markets because packers will tell you that a lot of, a lot of times historically, the difference between Making money and losing money was the value of what they call the drop, which includes the off-all and a lot of those, you know, it's it's a lot of those secondary type products. If you don't have the scale to be able to aggregate those secondary products and sell them in a market to get as much value of the carcass as you possibly can, it's it's not even that you can't compete with the big guys, it's that you can't stay in business. So that dynamic is very real.
0: It is. Absolutely. And it it very much happened, you know, as part of what led to this bubble bursting. Okay, so you've got this power dynamic. You've got all these people who are aristocracy used to pushing people around. Now they're at the mercy of these meat packers, right? These are not aristocrats. These are people in Chicago that have built real moats around this industry. Uh, In addition to that, you've got the railroads, also big business that are expanding into Texas and saying, well, hold on, we might not need to raise cattle in uh, Wyoming and Montana, ship it to Chicago, we can raise cattle in Texas, and maybe we even have a processor down there, which is what ended up happening. Maybe we even ship the beef on refrigerated rail cars instead of live cattle, like you talked about, too. Like, that's where the innovation was pushing things. On top of that, in 1885, uh, President Grover Cleveland orders the removal of grazing from Cheyenne and Arapaho reservations, probably long overdue to try to make good on some promises uh, made to the Native American people. and uh, that squeezed these cattle barons even more, right? They were pushed out of that area. There was already overcrowding in other areas. You've got these uh, barbed wire fences starting to go up. And so you've got this overcrowding. Uh, You start to have more and more cattle rustling as economic times got harder. You've got uh, wolves that – You know, started to dwindle as a result of the bison dwindling, but now have come back because there's more animals to eat again. Uh, You've got wolves starting to pick off a lot of cattle. And then, of course, you've got poor management practices and horrible perception of risk by a lot of these people who maybe didn't have the ability to run massive cattle operations, uh, in, in their previous careers. And then you've got Texas fever, which eventually did get taken care of, but putting pressure on these cattle operations as well. So there's a lot of dynamics on the supply side causing major turmoil, but as long as prices kept going up, they would be fine. Right. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately that, the uh, prices didn't continue to go up, you know, due to, uh, eventually supply caught up with demand oversupply started taking over. And then you, this power dynamic with the Packers, they could throw their weight around and, you know, it started to really put these people uh, out of business. Um, I already mentioned kind of what Fruin said when he returned to Wyoming and saw that everybody was kind of going broke in Cheyenne, that town of millionaires that, uh, was once, once booming. And, um, this is when he writes that, that famous, uh, the line, the one time he was right, right? I dread the winter. I dread the coming winter. If it's a severe one, half the cattle in Wyoming will die for sure. That's exactly what happened in the winter of 1886 to 1887. They call it the big die up. Uh, and This is straight from the book. So I'll quote it. When the number of dead animals was finally tallied in the late spring of 1887, the losses incurred in the big die up totaled nearly a million head of cattle, 50 to 80 percent of the various herds across the northernmost ranges. The greatest loss of animal life in pastoral history for animal carnage, only one even could possibly compete. It occurred just 20 years earlier across the same landscape. At the outset of the Great Cattle Era, the extermination of the American buffalo, or it's more accurately called the bison. So uh, you know we have two mass exterminations of livestock in a 20-year period: uh, the, the buffalo and then the cattle up in this range. One of the ranchers, James A. Jackson, wrote, "Times hard, money short, lost 50 percent, no calves, cattle credit played." out. Um, and that kind of marks one of the big uh, reasons that this whole thing kind of came to a head. Now, it wasn't just the big die up. It was all those factors that we've been talking about this entire time that led up to it, both what caused the exuberance and what squeezed them out of the business. But uh, that kind of burst, burst the bubble. At least it was the final, the final straw.
1: Yeah. Wh- one thing that I think is interesting is that... So... Yes, you definitely had meat packers that had leverage, right? They, they had the distribution, they had the highest value add, like they had the leverage. Um, they were the bottleneck in the, in the industry. So that gave them the leverage. However, there was also the fact that there was just more and more producers coming into cattle production. And so there was a lot of cattle. And so I think this is where you start to see, okay, the early outlines of the cattle cycle that we still see today, right? Where it's basically a 10 year cycle. And you can go through periods of time where, you know, there's an oversupply of cattle. And so the packers have all of the leverage and cattle prices are low and cattle producers hate it. And then that flips. And right now we're kind of in between those flips, but we're largely in one of the situations where, you know, cattle supply is tight. For the most part, cattle producers have the leverage, the packers are losing money now. And, you know, it just, we see these cycles and I just want to read, there was a, a paragraph from the book where it, he says, when he's early on, the author is laying the groundwork around how these, all of these investors and all this outside capital is thinking about the spaces they're coming into it. But it says, virtually all the participants of the nascent boom overlooked another important factor. They were rushing into an old-fashioned commodity boom with all its excitement and fever and blind disregard for risk. What made entry into the business so easy was precisely what would account for its rapid overexpansion. Too many participants too much unseasoned managers making rookie mistakes, and too much money chasing rapidly diminishing returns. And so that's what we saw, right? So then prices collapse as prices do.
0: And then uh, uh, one last character that we need to mention because he's so famous and it's such an interesting legacy from this time um, is uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And so there's been so much done about Theodore Roosevelt. We don't need to go into detail about him, but uh, I, I would highly encourage you to to read up on him because amazing president, amazing figure in American history. Uh, but at 25 years old, he was a New York uh, state assemblyman and a rising leader in the Republican party. He became disenchanted with the direction his party was taking. I'm not sure if how many of you Republicans can relate to that, but um, also he experienced a, a great deal of tragedy in his young adult life at 19. Uh, he lost his father who he was very close with. And then I think like six years later on the same day, uh, his wife died and his mother died. And so the guy was just uh, heartbroken, disenchanted with with politics. He was Harvard educated, smart, ambitious guy, but just like down and out to the world. And uh, that combined with his asthma, he decided to head out west to the Dakota territory um, to uh, reconnect with some contacts he had from Harvard that were in the cattle industry and started cattle ranching in his own business as well. So there's a lot we can cover about Roosevelt that we won't. But I do want to cite... The fact that you know this time cattle ranching, he wrote a great deal about it. Cattle ranching and hunting it not only revived him as a person and reignited his interest in in politics, uh, but it also stuck with him in his policies, uh, primarily in conservation. He became you know one of America's greatest conservationists, uh, if not the first sort of like prominent conservationist in American history. Uh, definitely one of the greatest. And I'll just read one passage about him. We can kind of close this thing out. But um, it says the value inherited from his father's generation, Theodore Roosevelt's own childhood hobbies of birdwatching and collecting animal specimens and his experience in politics would in concert produce the perfect nature crusader. And once Roosevelt found himself in the White House, he accelerated the work of the Boone and Crockett Club, doubling the number of national parks from five to ten. He would create 18 national monuments and conserve an astonishing 230 million acres of American soil as wilderness preserves and protected areas. He also goes on to be an antitrust advocate, if that's right, uh, basically breaking up these trusts from from railroads to sugar to steel, uh, which also has a, a very lasting impact on how American history played out. Partially as a result of his experience in the cattle industry, which I think is amazing. All right, we've already gone too long, Jeanette. But let's get to takeaways and wrap this thing up. Um, You know, as you think about this for the the future of agriculture, audience that listens, you know, what are your big takeaways uh, as a result of this story?
1: Yeah. So, I I mean, I'll, I'll group them into a couple. So, one is just, I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think that's how the quote goes, and it's so true. I mean, you just, especially you know, I kind of live more in the ag tech world right now. And you just see a lot of similarities between, you know, venture capital and uh, what's happened in the last few years with some of the boom and bust uh, dynamics that are happening in the cattle industry. One thing that I, a side note that I thought was really interesting was that in the book, it talked about how when Fluence structured his, his company, he didn't read the fine print close enough. And what he didn't realize was that he, as the, as the founder, did not have preferred shares. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley that have learned the difference in preferred shares and common shares and what that means when it comes to an exit event and uh, the preference given to investors who hold preferred shares versus common shares. Total side note, but uh, again, just, just kind of a, an interesting parallel there. So um, I think, yeah, that this, this idea that history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. You just see a lot of the outlines of the current industry as you read about these early days, you know, small versus large producers, producer versus packer everyone versus the market. The takeaway from that for me is that a lot of these issues are not new. They are not going to be solved tomorrow. A lot of these issues just don't merit the time and energy to litigate them. That time and energy should be you know, put towards trying to innovate and create opportunity and chase opportunity where it exists. Um, I, think, I think that's the better path. I think another, another takeaway for me is just this idea that markets will humble you. <laughs> And, and you have to remember that, um, you have to approach them humbly and smartly. And, you know, there's no such thing as a guaranteed thing in a, in a commodity market. And I think this is where, you know, obviously different individuals have different risk appetites, but I think there's a reason that we're seeing more and more sophistication around risk management as the industry has matured. And it's because of this fundamental challenge in navigating commodity markets and the boom and bust nature of commodity markets.
0: Yeah. One thing that stands out to me is just the old, uh, I think it's a quote that's often attributed to either Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, which is, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful, right? Uh, it's like, you know, when everyone else seems to be making money hand over fist, it it doesn't mean you don't participate in in an industry that's, you know, going gangbusters. That's great. There's a lot of opportunity, but you also need to be fearful in terms of like, understanding what risks uh, are, are out there and I, I have thought a lot about risk lately um, that's really kind of been my word of the year if I had if I had to choose one is just like what it means to perceive risk and where do people go wrong in their thinking when it comes to uh, looking at risk because it's not an exact science I think it's a fa- endlessly fascinating topic that I want to continue to explore the other one for me is um, you know on the last history episode with uh, Cyrus McCormick I talked about how innovation so often comes from very very dark times and what I what I failed to mention there and it is a lesson from this is that innovation also comes from times of just like crazy exuberance as well right when there's so much money uh at play like that could be a great time for innovation as well which is um again like we're, we're so quick to point the finger when things go wrong but i think it's important to realize that either from great constraints uh, or from great abundance we can find we can find you know new and innovative ways of doing things
1: so the there's also a, a, I think it's Charlie Munger, or maybe it's Warren Buffett, but I think it's Charlie Munger quote about when the tide goes out, you realize who's swimming naked. I think that's another idea that applies here as well, right? When prices are high, high prices cover a lot of management sins, right? But it's when prices drop that you see where the mismanagement is, where the lack of precision, where the lack of oversight, you know, where all of the cracks in the systems are. And I think that that's definitely another idea here. And the, One other thing that, that strikes me is that sometimes you you can be the, the most sophisticated risk manager out there, and yet sometimes there is just an element of luck when you're dealing with commodity markets. There was one story in the book about there was a guy that spent the winter of 1886, 1887 raising his capital so that he could get into the cattle business, unbeknownst to him you know, half the cattle in the United States are dying and all of these businesses are going under. So he comes to the US, he's got fresh capital to deploy. He's buying cattle for pennies on the dollar, which obviously sets him up for a very successful, um, long lasting career in the cattle industry. And that is not something that he could have timed with his best intent, right? Unless you had a crystal ball, you couldn't have timed it that well. So there is also sometimes an element of luck as you think about commodity markets as well.
0: I'm going to totally go out on a limb and say he probably had thoughts that he was too late. It turns out he was like maybe too early to just in the nick of time. So uh, there's there's a lesson in there, too. Like uh, for those of us thinking we're either that we might be too late for something. We might, we might even be too early. Um, man, so much good stuff. Thank you, Jeanette, for the encouragement to read this book, for reading it a second time alongside me and uh, for doing this episode. This is this has been fantastic. I Highly encourage everyone listening, whether you're interested in animal agriculture or not, to uh, check out this book. It's called Cattle Kingdom, The Hidden History of the Cowboy West by Christopher Knowlton. Highly, highly, highly recommend. Very relevant to many, many aspects of today's agriculture. Whether you're interested in animal agriculture or not, but especially if you are, make sure you're reading Prime Future. You can get it in your inbox weekly. I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Jeanette does a fantastic job every single week showing up with that. Uh, I'm going to leave you with one trope from the grain merchandising industry where I spent my career, the first eight years of my career. uh, And I don't know who to attribute it to because everybody says it, but I'm going to attribute it to my former boss, Rango Springer. And the quote goes, the cure for high prices is high prices. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Uh, We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.